tēnā koutou. You're listening to a co-education podcast, pushing the boundaries of educational possibilities. This one from Elliot. What is the best way to deal with staff who are racist but unaware of that? Well, what I found with the survey that I did was we've got to have a distinction between racism and just being like an asshole. You know, like, so I think that's an important definition in the first place is understanding exactly what it is, what is racist and what is not. And then once we know that, we have to tackle it. One day, just before they were about to leave, Mo took Nainoa and said, I want you to recite to me the star chart from Oahu to Tahitinui. This was like Ocean Voyaging 101, so it was really no problem for Nainoa to rattle it off. He was asked to do it again, and he did. And this went on and on, so much so that Nainoa started to doubt himself. This guy doesn't trust me. He doesn't think I can do this. What's going on? Now, I always think you probably know a little bit about the speaker and that's why you're here, but I did want to remind us that the session title is Whānau Navigation Through Our Education System, Can We See the Island? Dr. Kerry Milne-Ihimaida has over 16 years experience in roles as a principal, general manager and executive director, where she provides a Māori woman's perspective in the areas of education, leadership, people and strategy. She's currently the General Manager, Māori Development of the Southern Institute of Technology, advises the NZ Education Institute and is just all around amazing. She is a thawa to some awesome tamariki which we're going to meet this afternoon and mama to incredible tamariki as well. Um, basically she's shown that she knows the things that matter in terms of our education system. She's a superstar known by Fakapirimai Kerry Milne Ihimaira. Ko rua poke te motu, ko te ara kewa te moana, ko uh, te rau aroha te marae, ngai te rua hiki hiki te hapu, ngai tahu te iwi, ko Kiri Milne e himaira tōku ingoa. That waiata that welcomed you to this presentation was sung by two of my granddaughters, Atareta and Te Hākura, who won the Mana Māori and People's Choice sections of the AMA Music Awards at the end of last year with that song. You're going to meet them as the edutainment uh, presentation after this uh, session. And at nine and 11 years old, they were the youngest ever recipients of these prestigious awards. So not only am I taking full advantage uh, of the cute factor to keep you all awake and smiling this afternoon, I'm also clear that I'm bringing the faces of children, specifically Māori children, to the front of our minds during my presentation today. In his support of the girls' acceptance speeches at the AMA uh, Music Awards, my son Shay said, to all our Māori whānau out there on your journey of te reo Māori, this is the embodiment of three generations of hard work to reclaim our language. 
This was a message of hope, but an insight also into the struggle. The conference theme is navigating equity and beyond. Let's talk about the navigating part of that topic. It's something that all Māori whānau have extensive experience in, not just the amazing navigation feats of our ancestors, but the daily struggle that Shay was talking about as we navigate all our society's systems to reclaim ourselves as Māori. I stand before you as a Māori woman, a learner, a mum and a nanny. I'm an educator, a former teacher, a school principal, a school board member. I'm a doctor of Māori development and advancement. I've been an executive director at Te Wānanga o Aotearoa, a general manager in a charitable organisation, and now I'm working within my own education consultancy business with a role at the Southern Institute of Technology as the general manager of Māori development. I want to bring these experiences together today to talk about our education system. I want to use my personal journey and the many different roles I've mentioned as examples of my truth that I would suggest is the reality many Māori whānau experience as learners in our schools and institutions. I want to spell out today what that looks like and feels like with all these experiences in my kete, it's fair to say that I'm a critic of what's currently happening in mainstream education, and I challenge the system's readiness to transform to meet the needs of my mokopuna and many other mokopuna Māori. Then I want to talk about what needs to happen to eliminate those barriers and to give you some ideas that might help schools to take that deeper journey that is the absolute right of our mokopuna Māori, just like Atareta and Te Hākura, when they turn up and enrol in your school anywhere in Aotearoa. In an era of supposed ed educational change, we cannot move forward by continuing to replicate what we have done in the past. No matter how many new names we dream up for practice, that really isn't all that different. Voyaging together towards an equitable and thriving future. We all know what it's supposed to mean, but does it mean the same for Māori whānau as it does for schools or the Ministry of Education? How do we know? So who am I? As my pepeha explained, I'm from an island in between Bluff and Stewart Island called Duapuke Island. Our family is four generations disconnected from living on the land that connects me to my tribe in the South Island and to my Pākehā ancestors in Invercargill until 18 months ago when my husband and I shifted from Auckland to Bluff and we brought mum along for the adventure. This has been a lifelong dream, finally fulfilled, and I'm unable to describe how excited I am to be home, finally. I was raised and educated in Whangarei in Northland. And when I was in year 10, we moved to Auckland. So you learn about racism early, particularly when it's directed at you. My first lesson came at the age of 14 in year 10, when I returned to my large South Auckland secondary school, having won the national Manukorero speech competitions. As I proudly followed the karanga into the assembly hall with my trophy, I heard ape noises from many students who were never corrected. I learned about institutional racism 
and teaches personal racism and low expectations that were a major reason that Māori learners didn't do well at school. Despite the rhetoric, Māori children were not expected to succeed in the system and all of the school's practice and processes ensured that that became our truth. The learning continued at university in the world of teacher training. I entered teaching with the deliberate decision that I basically wanted to teach Māori children to give them a different experience from my own. At that time, with the naivety of youth, I still thought I'd simply had a bad deal at high school, and I don't think it had yet occurred to me that this would be a common Māori learner's story. I emerged from teacher training still with the lofty vision of strengthening Māori education, but who actually wanted me? I discovered that the commitment that we had developed in our tertiary learning journey was not actually shared by the schools who appointed us. We wanted to change the world. They wanted us to add a little bit of Māori language or tutor the kapahaka group, or even if we were lucky, work in the bilingual classes as the sole Māori teacher in the school. As long as we realised that te reo Māori was still an add-on, after we tested our Māori language learners with the school's English language tests first and fitted in with the mainstream part of the school's operation. And that was the backdrop we navigated in schools. As I soon found out, the school environments and practices that we think of as normal or traditional are really colonial practices, which the system has normalised and embedded in our training. How much has that actually changed? I know of young Māori teachers entering our profession right now who could tell you pretty much the same story. How many of you know schools out there where there's still the lone Māori language teacher holding down the aspirations of the entire Māori nation? Those are my experiences of navigating racism in my professional and education roles. But what about our personal roles as parents, grandparents, as Māori whānau. My name is Kiri Milne, oh, Kiri Tanya Milne Ihimaira. I was born in Australia and we moved back to New Zealand when I was about a year old. My dad tells a story about wanting to name me Hine when I was born. Hine was probably one of the few words my Māori dad would have known 53 years ago. However, he was worried that in Australia I'd be called Hine when people saw my name. So I was called Kiri, but I'm thankful for the spelling of my name so that you might think it was a Māori name if you saw it. I'd like to think it's one way of capturing that original intention my parents had. My son's name is Shay Atereo Milne. 35 years ago as a 16-year-old mum, I knew about revolutionaries and how important they were to affect change for their people. And I knew I wanted a Māori name for my son, but somehow, it came after his first name. This was a pattern we repeated for our next two daughters, Blake Kākoti and Georgia Tehononga. By the time our youngest daughter was born 22 years ago, our position was different and we were somehow brave enough to give her a Māori first name, Kairangi Penian Ihimaira. My own children's journey through the education system coincides with that so-called renaissance and revival of te reo Māori. Our choices for our four children map out the changes that have occurred in Māori education since that time. 
Over 30 years ago, at the beginning of the Kohanga Reo movement, and as a young mother, I was excited for my son to be one of the first children to attend. We and all of our friends who had made similar decisions for their children didn't care too much about the lack of focus on English. If our children could say one Māori word, we felt we were doing our bit for the survival of the language. Seven years later, with the arrival of our daughter, our thinking had changed. We still wanted immersion education, but English was important too this time around. Our expectation now was that it was our children's absolute right to have excellence in both languages. By the time our third child arrived in 1996, there were more options. Could a kaupapa, immersion, bilingual units. So it didn't feel as much of a conscious decision. It had become for us our normal pathway. Our youngest daughter, born in the year 2000, finished her total immersion education in Te Reo Māori from year 8 through to year 13 in Wharekura, the secondary school section at Kura Kaupapa Māori. We celebrated her 21st birthday last year. And if becoming a mother gave me a new perspective on learning, becoming a grandmother took that perspective to a whole new level. I'm now the proud grandmother of six mischief mokopuna who have been immersed in te reo Māori since birth. Our, our grandchildren are Atarita, Te Hākura, Tīpare, Te Rā, Hinemanoanui and Nikau and there are no English words hiding anywhere in their names. With their learning, we've come full circle from a whānau whose language was first and predominantly English to this new generation who know little English at all and who are fluent native Māori speakers. In our whānau bubble, that's an achievement we're really proud of. As a whānau, however, We've realised that the status quo of the New Zealand mainstream education system is not going to suit my mokopuna. 89% of Māori children are enrolled in our mainstream education system, where only 7% receive Māori medium education at levels 1 and 2. There is only 4% of Māori children in kura kaupapa Māori. 22% of Māori children and 34% of non-Māori children have no Māori language learning at all. As a whānau, we have to remember that while we have worked hard to reclaim te reo Māori, just because it feels pos positive in our bubble, it's not the reality for most of our extended Māori whānau. For many communities, there are no education choices other than the local school up the road. I get to work in some schools where I still hear Māori students' names mispronounced and there's little effort to say Māori place names correctly and it's pretty clear to me in those places what's important at the school. We're proud, of course, of the development of kōhanga reo, kura kaupapa, whare kura, and other Māori medium education options that have given us some choices and an alternative for us to consider. However, in the mainstream, no matter how much we Māori change our thinking, bureaucracy, the government and the system continues to perpetuate barriers that make it very difficult to work differently. And the push for more of us to learn and use te reo Māori is only going to grow. Like the obligation to meet these targets of mahi karauna, 
the Crown's draft Māori language strategy by 2040. It's not only Māori children that will benefit from these goals, but think about all of the other children who miss out on a rich worldview when they're not exposed to Māori language, values and tikanga as a normal, accepted part of their school day. Think about what that crown target means for your school and your school's Māori community. The challenge for our mainstream education providers is to interrogate their organisation and practice and understand that we've actually got a problem. The problem, of course, is not with the students, but with the way we've historically delivered this thing called education. It's old, it's tired, it's still colonial, and for large groups in our society, it simply doesn't work. So it was that kind of thinking that led me to principalship, the intentional decision to lead in mainstream schools where the majority of Māori learners are. I thought as the leader of the school, I'd be able to make a contribution that changed the reality for Māori kids in their whānau. In 2003, I accepted my first principal position and we moved to the beautiful Hokianga in Northland where my husband's family were from and the school leadership learning began. In that first position at the beautiful two-teacher Mātihetihe School, where I was the fifth principal the board had appointed that year, I learned that a Māori community was not just going to sit back and accept this towny principal, whether I was Māori or not. I learned I had to walk my talk and earn their trust. It was a good lesson for my next move to the leadership of Moirewa School, where I was to learn about the struggle to maintain the mana of Fano and the mana of a Māori community in the face of what seemed insurmountable odds that included the wielding of excessive power, institutional and personal racism, and the blatant ignoring of a Māori community's explicitly articulated vision, the dream they had developed over years. No other experience has given me such a blatant demonstration that even when we knew what we wanted, what we were committed to navigating towards, the minister and the Ministry of Education were the kaihotu and were really in charge. They defined our success and the only people in the waka sharing the paddling with us were the community, the staff, the board, and a very small number of allied trustees who all saw the benefits for our children. In 2011, we had 27 students in the Moirewa senior class who were blitzing NCEA as just one measure of their success. However, when we decided to talk about our interim results, the immediate response from the Ministry of Education and the New Zealand Qualifications Authority upon hearing our predicted results was that it was so unusual for brown kids to be achieving that the only possible explanation was that they had cheated. Students' NCEA results were frozen and there was an unprecedented audit of 80% of their work by NZQA. This table, written by one of the teachers at the time, contrasts how we were treated in comparison to every other secondary school in New Zealand. An Official Information Act request I sent to NZQA as part of my research 
confirmed that no other school has ever been asked to send this volume of work for moderation. The outcome of all of this scrutiny found our results were in line with other schools nationally. However, by then the class had been shut down and students were unable to use their results for access to university or other destinations. All of the saga was played out publicly in the national media. The experience became the subject of my doctoral thesis that tells the story from the community's perspective. The story highlights the stark inequities in our current education system and the way it works against some sectors of our society. Why was Moirua school treated so differently? Was this the consequence for challenging the status quo and offering young people of Moirua and their whanau a viable alternative? We definitely know that it was. I always acknowledge the community of Moirua. I'm the storyteller, but it's our collective story. So all of those experiences shaped my thinking and actions earlier in my career and the decisions we made for our whanau over the last 30 years reflected that learning. You would hope this has now changed significantly as our education landscape and our society's supposed readiness shifts. But how real is that society shift? It's like we're concreted in the status quo, unable to look for other ideas and think through to solutions. Are we really unable? Or are we unwilling to look closely at the system that has served some of us well and continues to marginalize many others of us? We can't ignore the fact that every time we turn on the radio or watch TV and hear Te Reo Māori, the inevitable redneck comments follow online and in our newspapers. It still surprises me that so many people are so oblivious to their racism that they blatantly include it in their candidate statements for this year's local government election campaign, for example. So you'll excuse me being a little skeptical about the conference theme, voyaging together towards an equitable and thriving future. Now is the time to take stock, equip our waka with the various taonga and gifts we bring and set for the horizon. I mean, it sounds like a great picture, right? But let me tell you a story that I was once told about navigation and one that I think we need to keep in the front of our minds during this conference. I heard Justice Sujo Williams tell a story about the ancient Māori navigator Kupe and what incredible knowledge, science, technology, skill and bravery it took to make that first journey into the unknown over 1,000 years ago. They didn't know where they were going. No one had done it before, but they knew there was something else out there as Cooper had noticed the birds that would arrive at certain times of the year that didn't have webbed feet. So they'd come from land and not sea. He looked to the migration patterns of the whales to work out what island that bird might be going to. And we know that Cooper didn't just come to Aotearoa once. Other navigators that followed Cooper's roadmap that he'd memorized from that first journey meant they and all of their passengers all made it here over the next couple of hundred years. Over the next hundred years or so, the descendants of many of those first navigators on those first waka 
lost that voyaging skill, or they decided that things were so great in Aotearoa that they didn't need it anymore. And we saw the long distance ocean voyaging skill gradually be lost across all Polynesia, from Hawaii to Rapa Nui to Aotearoa. In the 1970s, a Hawaiian man named Nainoa Thompson formed the Polynesian Voyaging Society. There were many from Aotearoa who were involved. Just as Sir Joe Williams and Nainoa Thompson became friends, and Joe Williams tells the story. Nainoa found one of the last navigators who still had that ancient, traditional navigation skill, a man named Mo Pialu. Mo agreed to go to Hawaii and teach Nainua and a few others who would make the first trip from Oahu to the island of Tahiti Nui on the Hokolea. For two years, Mo taught them to read the ocean and navigate by the stars. One day, just before they were about to leave, Mo took Nainua and said, I want you to recite to me the star chart from Oahu to Tahiti Nui. This was like Ocean Voyaging 101, so it was really no problem for Nainua to rattle it off. He was asked to do it again, and he did. And this went on and on, so much so that Nainua started to doubt himself. This guy doesn't trust me. He doesn't think I can do this. What's going on? And after about the sixth time, Mo said to Nainua, now can you see the island? Nainua didn't understand the question. And of course, you can't see the island from there. So he said to Mo, I don't understand. What do you mean? And Mo walked away. The next day, they came back. He did the star chart thing again, five or six times. And then, now, can you see the island? Nainoa said, I don't understand. And Mo walked away. This went on for three days. And on the fourth day, when Mo said, can you see the island? Nainoa closed his eyes and tried to conjure up the island of Tahiti Nui in his mind. After some time, he said, yes, Mo, I can see the island. I can see it now. I've got it. And he said, Mo smiled and said to him, you must keep that island in your mind for you are the navigator. It was a lesson not just about navigating. It was a lesson about leadership. Mo was really telling Nainua that he must know with every fibre of his being where he is going if he's going to be a great navigator. If you don't have the island firmly in your mind, the waves and the storms will distract you so much that you will lose your way. The more radical the journey, the clearer the island image must be. So you learn 2022, can you see the island? How do we channel our inner kupe and be radical in our thinking to navigate deliberately towards a destination that actually makes a difference for mokopuna and is not just a list of actions that makes us feel good, but doesn't shift the equity dial for Māori learners in schools? The steps that kupe and kura marotini and all of the great captains and navigators who followed them were prepared to take were for the good of the whānau they carried with them on those voyaging canoes, to leave behind the known and venture out into the unknown. What if it means for us that we have to stop doing some of the things we've always done so that other groups can get some attention, some time in the sun, 
to thrive? How comfortable are we with that notion? How do we ensure that we're all focused on the destination, on deciding our end point and describing that island so that we can actually see it? We have to make sure that we're not distracted by the winds and storms that will come our way that make us drift off course and that we're ambitious enough to embrace new learning and move beyond our current reality. It needs to start at a personal level. How would each one of you tell the story of your journey so far? Because there's always more to learn, as I have found out. I've had to make some shifts of my own and have certainly taken on some radical new learning. My most recent island destination goal that I could see long before it became a reality was to return home so that my mokopuna didn't tell the story of being four generations disconnected or 10 generations disconnected from being a tahu. Someone had to make the change. I recognize my privilege. I'm in work and in work that I can almost do anywhere. But there were other things that I'd also have to give up. I missed the morning cuddles with mokopuna and seeing them every day, which was the reality in Auckland. In the shift to bluff, I'm in the position of having to earn the trust of my own iwi. Once again, I'm the townie, the Aucklander arriving in bluff, knowing not much and knowing nobody. My job is to sit and listen, to make connections, to understand how things work and to definitely take a back seat. Over time, people will get to know me and maybe I'll have some skills and talents that may be beneficial to others. But for now, it's about humility, being of service, washing dishes at the marae and learning where all the plates go. I imagine it's similar to principals and teachers trying to dip their toes into the complexity and richness of their Māori communities and accepting that you're starting at the beginning of the relationship, no matter how important you think your nine to five job is. The benefits of our move to Bluff are already being realised after only 18 months, a blip in time when you consider this is about intergenerational outcomes. Our Fano have a place to come to now, and they have in droves, to reconnect with Motu Pohue, with Rua Puke, and to make connections with the Bluff community. We soak up like sponges any whakapapa connections, knowledge about birding, power diving right outside our front window, the oyster season, blue cod fishing. We understand that we can be proud of the return of te reo Māori in our homes and onto the tongues of our mokopuna and our strong links to our children's Northland tribal connections through their father's whakapapa, but our work is not done. We understand there is so much more we have to learn from our whakapapa and we're in the perfect place to do just that. On the work side of the move, there's more lessons. I'm contracted in a part-time role to work with the Southern Institute of Technology as their general manager of Māori development. The tertiary sector is currently going through its own period of immense change. As of December 2022, SIT will no longer exist as a standalone organisation as all vocational education comes under the management and direction of a national body, Te Pukenga. 
I completely understand and support SIT's need to retain a strong position in Southland, but it's the Te Pukinga leadership who are deciding on a future leadership and governance structure for all of their subsidiaries. However, to hear Te Pukinga talk about Te Tiriti partnerships and a relentless focus on equity through their entire national structure and organization makes me feel hopeful that finally a Māori perspective may be highlighted and viewed as one of the first priorities, rather than being tacked on at the end once all of the important decisions have been made. In my consultancy work, both nationally and regionally, I often find myself still waiting for the shifts and change that need to happen. Despite the seismic shifts that have come out of the education conversation over the last few years, now mandated in teacher standards, Ministry of Education vision statements like Kahikitia and in the national education learning priorities, when you dig down into the psyche of a school's or an education organization's practice, the racism that is deeply embedded is hard to confront. The Ministry of Education's rollout of Te Huri Hanganui is a $42 million acknowledgement of the racism that exists in our sector. I have recently designed and implemented a national staff survey for an education organization committed to being tetiriti led to examine the extent of the racism within their organization. The results of the survey were challenging and presenting them to leadership saw many of its membership surprised. My four recommendations for action as a result of the survey data were to look at staff training and development because it was clear that over a third of their staff couldn't identify if an issue was racist or not. Two, to develop an affirmative action recruitment policy with the aim to increase the representation of Māori workers in the organisation. You can't be a tetiriti-led organisation, I told them, if Māori make up less than 10% of your workforce. To move from hoping to stop racism to be actively anti-racist was another recommendation. This would be a positive move for the organisation to be proud of its increased commitment. And finally, I recommended that the organisation look to grow their understanding regarding the extent of structural and institutional racism within the organisation. To move from a focus of the impact of racism on individuals to addressing structures and systems of power at an organisation level. 12 months later, a repeat of the same survey has seen some major changes in policy and action, but importantly, in the thinking and awareness of all staff. Interestingly, however, when I filtered feedback by ethnicity, it's generally Pākehā staff feeling like things are changing in the organisation and Māori staff not noticing the extent of the change we had hoped for. So how do you as teachers and school leaders take those same soul searching and brutally honest steps towards big change? Can you see your island? Who is currently in charge? Who is defining your success? What does your island really look like? Who's in the waka with you? Are you looking 
far enough out towards the horizon? Or are you focused on an easier island destination, one that you've already visited and just want to improve? I said I learned my biggest lesson in blatant racism in what happened to the Moirua community. In my doctoral research, I developed a tool I called Pifakahomanutanga. The tool was a process I recommended to the Ministry of Education that would change the way they intervene in schools to ensure that the mana of the community was respected first and their island was a place they navigated towards together. In my recent work in schools, it seems to me that Te Manutanga is a tool, a process that helps us to see our island, to identify and gather all the knowledge and resources we need to navigate our waka to that place. So today, I want to introduce you to that process. Te Manutanga is a restoration process, and that's what this work is about. This voyage isn't about this term or this year or a child's length of time in your school. It's about restoring memory and mana, building new knowledge, setting the pillars in place for generations ahead, a restorative tool designed to share power and revitalize and rejuvenate. The development of this framework was guided by the Fakatoki Matirongo Ka Mohio. Mate mohio ka marama, mate marama ka mato, mate mato ka ora. Through a Western lens, it may seem obvious that you first must identify an issue and then work to solve it. However, this Maori philosophical lens teaches us that knowledge and well being come at the end of a carefully constructed process that includes other stages. All stages require a commitment to deeper thinking and understanding and ultimately will require a commitment to investing the time that is necessary to move through the stages of this process. The model reminds us of the outcome of well-being, which moves far beyond concepts like completion, compliance, agreement and control. It's a deeper outcome and one could argue a more sustainable and important outcome that deliberately locates the outcome of the process with the well-being of the people involved in the process. So let's take a, look, a closer look at each stage, realizing that this is a very brief overview of a deep and extensive process of change, the type of change that is needed to really make a difference. So stage one, Materongo kamohio, through hearing comes awareness. This is an introductory wānanga session. You would think about who's in the waka, who's in charge, who are the stakeholders, are they represented in the wānanga? Where are the areas of non-negotiable change and shift? Are we asking the right questions and not answering them ourselves? Can we see the island? Can we describe it? How will we work together? What are the values that we will agree will be used for the duration of the process? This needs to be a lengthy session. There are no shortcuts. It's a robust discussion and consensus is the goal. 
a skilled independent facilitator may help set up the framework and goals and actions to follow. Remember in this stage, you're supposed to be listening to hear so that you can hear the feedback from others to help grow your awareness. I find this can often be a skill that some in our sector find hard to do. Stage two, mate mohio ka marama. Through awareness comes understanding. From the agreements reached in stage one, this stage sets the agreed goals and actions and timeframes in place. We ask ourselves who's involved? Does this include mana whenua? Do mana whenua have an iwi education plan? Who's responsible for which parts? How do you actively support other iwi aspirations? How do you highlight successes and key achievements? What are the barriers? Can you still see the island? Stage three, matemarama kamato, through understanding comes knowledge. Share these agreed goals and actions with your school and community Fano. This part of the process acknowledges the contribution of a wider collection of people in the success of the school. Is the collective understanding of the goals? A community group may be set up at this stage to ensure that there's a regular discussion with community representatives, including those who might oppose your direction. Have you achieved a shared accountability for success? What does success actually look like? Who decided? Who's in charge? Can everyone see the island? Who else understands your voyage and your island? Where can you go for resources and allies for your voyage? There is a lot of help once you know where to look. And this process helps to identify ones relevant to your setting. And talking about where to go to for help, these are my go-to suggestions for resources, and there are many others. Talk with others about the latest research, work collaborative, collaboratively with groups who are further down the track than you in a tuakana relationship. Be comfortable that being uncomfortable is your new normal. Challenge the status quo. Learn from the extensive information that's available. But most importantly, do something with this knowledge. Take action. Hilda Harawedna says that once you've had your eyes opened, you can't shut them, so you've been warned. Back to the stages. Number four, mate mato ka ora. Through knowledge comes well-being. Hui akura. The purpose of these meetings is to ensure that all groups involved are talking with each other and the progress against the agreed goals set in the Wananga session is shared. There is accountability to the group. Ask yourselves what's working, what's proving difficult, what strategies do we need to change? How are we reporting back to all stakeholders? What are our next steps? And can we still see the island? Stage five, evaluation, a summary process. This is a robust evaluation process. Have the original goals set been achieved? Is there evidence of sustainable practice in the school? Has the mana of the students, the school and its community been maintained, restored, prioritized and enhanced? Have we arrived at the island? Does it look the way we envisaged it? 
This process is never about shifting the vision because we encountered some storms. Of course, there'll be storms. If we were robust enough in the first stages of the process, the island shouldn't change. And was your island on firm foundations in the first place so that it couldn't shift? That's a key question for stage one. Did you have rocky, narrow, technical expectations based on literacy, numeracy, NCEA, and other Western-orientated outcomes as your goals? Did you ask yourself what else was important to the communities and whānau your school serves? Did you listen when they told you differently? Were your questions designed to draw out different answers or, your, or were your questions met with silence that can speak volumes? In a 2015 interview, my ngaitahu whanaunga and CEO of this organisation, Core Education, Dr. Hannah O'Regan said, all of our lives we've been bombarded with misleading messages about our history and our capabilities. So whenever there's any suggestion of our inferiority, we need to have the confidence to say, actually, that's crap. The proper story of our people is of our amazing resilience and tenacity and innovation and adaptivity. Adaptability. That's the unique talent and unique ability you saw in the achievements of Atareta and Tehakura at the start of my talk, and you will see and hear of more soon. Our Fano and our Mokopuna are no different from the Tamariki and Nangatahi Māori in your schools and communities. If your Te Manu Tanga process and your island doesn't clearly spell out that proper story that Hana talks about, then it's still built on the colonizers' expectations and controls that have defined the island for our children in the past and in the present. I don't know that Kupe would have left Hawaii for some NCEA credits. Your challenge is to make your island destination inspirational and aspirational, radically better than what we have now, so that everyone wants to be on the waka with hands to the paddles, ready for work, voyaging together towards an equitable and thriving future. Motato a monga uri a muriake nei tinatato katua. Mauriora, Mauriora kiatato. Tinakwe Kiri, I wish you could see the chat as you were speaking. Oh. I think a lot of people took a second and it was good to voice their anger and shock at what happened at Moirewa. As a quick aside before we get into our questions, um, does your doctorate speak to how they all are now, those students? It doesn't, but that's a question I get asked often and I check in with them a lot and um, they're doing well, they're great. They were neat, neat kids then, they're still neat adults. <laughs> Always excellent, and I love the fact that you guys knew that. So I'm going to go straight to our questions that have been upvoted. This is from Carrie. Do you think we have the right people around the table from a Ministry of Education perspective for the future of Aotearoa? How can we change a whitewashed system? Big question. Uh, Big question. Yeah, it, I mean, the short answer is no, because we, um, and that's not a disrespect to the people, the individual people who I'm sure are skilled and talented, but what I see is a replication of what we've already got. And I'm looking for our next tranche 
like what are our next what's the next thinking what are our next kurakaupapa what are our next wananga what are our next what's that next initiative that's going to be the game changer and when sadly we look at mainstream education there are no game changing things happening there's pockets of amazing stuff that different individual people are doing but the system continues to replicate itself so i think we need more disruptors i think we need more difference sitting around the table at those decision making levels yeah because i guess it's a good reference they're actually not hitting on an island we're still on the mainland yeah so this question flows on nicely what would you suggest as the first step of bringing this to life and i guess they mean in education settings is it governance leadership kayako tamariki students yeah i think one of the first steps is to understand that what we've currently got isn't delivering the goods and i know we talk about that like ad infinitum but when we talk about so therefore what's the change and i see incremental steps that people take but what would it look like if we had that destination vision first and we spent time really developing that and in developing that understanding the damage that the system is doing to fano uh, communities and so involving them in that restoration and in deciding what's that end point and that was the special factor about being at Moirua they had an amazing um, end point that they'd already decided on and we were in the privileged position of kind of making that come to light so I think I think deciding on the end point first rather than taking these small steps is is what needs to happen and including our whānau, our hapū, our iwi communities in the decision about what that end point is. Tēnākwe, so what the island looks like. And another question similar but a very good point, saying they love te whakahau manutanga. What do you think the time frame might be for a school to go through this? We thought that that could probably take a year, but it's a repeat, it's a cycle, it's a repeating process. So you could revise and refresh, but we like the idea that those huiakura would be a reporting back mechanism regularly to communities, and that communities would have a say in what happened. So I'd probably say it might be a process of a year. But with all things, there's no reason why you couldn't do that in a shorter time frame. Um, and there's certainly no reason why you couldn't just continue to evolve and, and grow it, you know, onwards. I guess one of the challenges is that people like to know things like that at the beginning, don't they, a time frame, but it has to be set and developed as we go. And it depends what we're talking about. Like sometimes time frames are real restrictors of listening, learning, understanding, um, really unpacking what's happening. So that first one in a session just needs to take as long as it needs to take. That could be days, that could be weeks. But if that's set up really powerfully, then the following stages should flow, you know, wonderfully. Kia ora. So this question, what is the one thing that teachers can do tomorrow that will have the biggest impact for Atma? I love that question because I always think that, you know, I talk about system shift, right? And that's this huge thing. And then teachers are like, well, yeah, okay, we get that. But what can I do tomorrow? I think this awareness that 
that the system is designed to work well for some and not for others. And some people say that the system is failing. Others of us would say the system's actually doing what it's designed to do. And that is filter, you know, filter students. And we know the ones that are not being served well. So I think an awareness from teachers that that's the, that's what they're, that's the game that they're involved in. I think for teachers to read, to learn, to get political, those are the steps that they can actually take. And then when they do that, they should notice a shift in their classroom practice. If they do all of this learning and their classroom practice is the same as what it's always been, we haven't done enough learning. So there's absolutely roles for teachers, for groups, for boards, for ministry decision makers. We've all got different different lanes and different levels, but we can have we can take action in each of those. Yeah, and I guess taking that action will help us understand that we are making changes and, and also feel differently about the process, I guess. We, we have to make change. It's got to be different. If it's the same old, same old, you know, the cliche, we're just going to get the same old stuff. Yeah, we know. We should know by now, shouldn't we? Now, this no. question is quite specific. People use the phrase mana enhancing, but recently, <laughs> I see your face, there have been Māori asking for it not to be used. It's been touched on by a few people in this conference that people are born with mana, but could you speak to that idea and your feelings on that term? Absolutely. I think everyone's born with, with mana. I think we would... we. When I was at Moirewa, we would talk about students, you know, being rangatira. You know, they might not have reached that point then. That might be unrealised potential. Nevertheless, you know, that's the lens that you bring to a conversation. You speak with speak with children, to children in rangatira ways. And so it's the same with mana. I think it's often bandied around. And the term mana enhancing, I think, is just a, it's almost like a comfortable way for us to talk about you know, how we add value, things that we've always been talking about. So I think the the caution is to not try to simplify what mana means in a really simple one-word definition of it means value added or all those kinds of things. If we could really understand the depth of the word, that would be an important start. And enhancing somebody's mana, it does point to the view that they don't have enough of it in the first place. We're full of mana. We're full up to the top. It's just get out of the way and help us exercise that mana. We're able to exercise that mana on a daily basis, and, and we do. Yeah, so I guess it also speaks to who believes they have the power to enhance. Correct. This one from Elliot. What is the best way to deal with staff who are racist but unaware of that? Well, what I found with the survey that I did was we've got to have a distinction between racism and just being like an asshole. You know, like, is this racist practice or is this person just a nasty person? And quite a lot of the time, people would label everything as being racism and actually it's not. So I think that's an important definition in the first place is understanding exactly what it is, what is racist and what is not. And then once we know that, we have to tackle it. So when we have those our staff members uh, who are racist in their thinking or their practice or their behaviour, then they need to be called out about that. With love and support and generosity, what can we do to help? But then we get to a point in time where like, that's just completely unacceptable and they need to go somewhere else. So the literacy around racism and what is racist, 
how, you know, what are some tips you could give in that area to help people understand that super racist? I mean, one clue is if you say, I'm not racist, but you're about to say a racist. <laughs> yeah. You're about I, to do I, a racist. <laughs> yeah, look, honestly, um, I, I'm encouraged that a lot more organisations, a lot more groups are really spending a lot of time talking about this question. So I'm encouraged about that because it does mean that there is a lot more awareness and people are, again, open to improving. Like, it's got to be better. I think we need to start at an individual, personal level and understand what does that mean for us individually. But that's not the end of the conversation. It needs to continue to be through to systems, structures, power imbalances. All of those things are still racism. So it's kind of like how long is a piece of string? And we can't try to just tackle this tiny little incident that might have happened here, which is a terrible thing. And there's trauma that's associated with that. But that's not the only thing we've got to tackle. We've got to tackle it all. Kilda. Right, Viv says, as Tawiwi, I'm trying to play the role of being an ally to support and have been told a couple of times that it's not my place. What are your thoughts? We definitely need Tawiwi allies. I'm personally very happy to have Tawiwi allies. This is a system shift, eliminating racism, all of those kinds of things need all hands to the paddle. However, uh, we don't need people to talk for us or to make decisions for us. Sometimes allies need to get out of the way uh, to enable us to exercise our authority. Sometimes allies need to do lots more education for themselves. For example, in the organisation that I did the racism survey, staff wanted Māori to give them the answers. You know, what would what would be Māori suggestions about what we needed to do? And it was very clear that we had to say, well, actually, you've got to do some homework yourself. This isn't just about Māori providing you with the answers. So I think allies are a really important concept. But I do think allies have got to understand that that might mean that their behaviour or practice might need to change. Kia ora. Wedge in a couple more questions. I understand that we're not wanting to rush the process. However, I feel cautious that if we are not making the changes sooner, we will continue to replicate the status quo. So I guess it's about the feeling of urgency. Absolutely, there's an urgency because, you know, while we wait for the adults to work out what it is that we need to do to achieve system shift, you know, there's tamariki and mokopuna who are the sacrificial lambs while we get ourselves sorted. So absolutely, there's an urgency. There are things that could change from tomorrow, and then there are other things that are going to take a longer time. So again, we need to be doing it all. We can't just choose one particular thing. We've got to do it all. And I absolutely agree there's an urgency. Kia ora. The NCA credits you speak of are, I'm guessing, a metaphor. But what would Kupe have left the shore for? Would it be the same thing that we are now voyaging for? Certainly the NCEA credits are a metaphor. But, you know, I would imagine that Kupe and all of the other navigators why would you leave home for something that's exactly the same? You've got to have the promise of the, the island in your mind that what you're leaving your home for is going to be radically better, decidedly different, a much better island environment for you to put in all of that work in order to achieve. 
I sometimes worry that we've got really low level kinds of goals and expectations that we can achieve. The important part is the achievement, but they're not really lofty. They're not game changers. And I think Kupia uh, needed a game changer and he needed to be aspirational to get others on his waka. Like if he's just saying, we're gonna drift up the road somewhere and it's gonna be exactly the same, I wouldn't have got on board. So I think it's all around that metaphor of it's got to be bigger, it's got to be better, it's got to be bolder, and we need people on the waka with us. I mean, I really enjoyed celebrating the success of your whānau through the hard work of your generations, at least three, uh, to bring back so much to your whānau and to uncover, recover, remember. So some might look at you and go, well, this is at the island, but what do you see as a destination for your whānau and your island? Yeah, we're not at the island. We've got big aims and aspirations for more to come. But certainly the intergenerational transference, that if we can be sure that this is sustainable for our whānau for generations to come, then we might take our, our foot off the pedal a little bit. Um, but, we, you know, there's much more to do. Uh, there's much more to dream. And there's much more work to be done. So, um, yeah, I think the 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 looking to the future, uh, when we're sure that our mokopuna are able to have all of this as a normal part of their life in a society that values that, where they're not uh, a small percentage uh, and the majority of their whanau are, are not in the same situation as, the, as they are, when we're healthy, when we have economic independence, you know, all of those are the, the keys that we're wanting to tick off. And we've got we've got lots more to do. Tenakwe, and we feel more equipped as a result of your keynote. I can see by how people have responded. So thank you so much. Uh, when you know that you come from Ruapuke, a lot of things make sense. Uh, look up Ruapuke and how visionary and incredible they've always been. Your resilience, uh, your intergenerational strength. Wrap around all of us to give this incredible end to you learn 22. So thank you for challenging what is Kopapa for this conference, but let's make sure that it is a destination that actually makes a difference. It's not just a nice picture and just a nice metaphor. Noreira, tene kamehitengako kiakwe etetua wahine kokwe kairunga kokwe ke tefetsutarake oterangi kiotakiri. You've been listening to a core education podcast, pushing the boundaries of educational possibilities. Te nara koutou.